0: It's St. Patrick's Day. It's a Friday. It's closing out the week on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi, who's a little bit frosty today because she has four questions and (laughs) had to do extra preparation. So this may be one of those days where... She and I have the kind of debates that people like being in the newsroom for.
1: I'll just or- call you afterward and
0: <laughs> <laughs> when I get a message from you early in the morning saying describing <laughs> yourself as salty, I know I'm in for trouble. Let's begin, Layla. How will the supporters of a proposed constitutional amendment guaranteeing a right to abortion work to get signatures needed to put the proposal before voters? We wondered whether there would be big events or if it would be underground to avoid protests. What's the plan?
1: Well, so the coalition that has formed to get this issue passed will rely mostly on trained volunteers. The campaign will also hire some paid signature gatherers to supplement that effort, but mainly they're really hoping that the the fervor and the passion that was stirred when Roe was overturned will inspire a legion of volunteers to help and, and will serve as a motivating force to get this done. The coalition backing the Ohio effort, which includes a grassroots physicians group and long-established abortion rights supporters like Planned Parenthood, they need roughly 413,000 signatures by July 5th to get on November ballots. They're going to aim for 700,000 to be on the safe side. And they'll certainly be met with a great deal of opposition. Already a $5 million campaign has been launched against them that will be running ads against the ballot issue, tapping into a lot of Disinformation about what this constitutional amendment would do, and it's a it's a similar tactic to what was attempted in Michigan to kill that effort, and it didn't work there. So hoping hoping Ohioans will see through this as well.
0: It's odd that they're going to spend that money during the signature gathering because the the battle will be for the the uh, votes. So there, so it's going to be a volunteer effort. they going to go around, but we are hearing. about some big events, right?
1: Yes, I I'm very excited about this. I heard yesterday from Marla Zwingy, who's people might remember her from the news. She was one of the vaccine queens who we had we, we wrote so much about. You know, since concluding that work that she was doing when she was helping people schedule those once elusive vaccines uh, during the time of the pandemic, she has started volunteering in other ways, and she's now with Red Wine and Blue, which is that women's activist group. She texted me yesterday and said that she's picking up books today. For a massive signature gathering effort that she's organizing on behalf of the coalition, and they will have two drive-up opportunities to sign the petition this mm-hmm. weekend. I believe at least one of them is going to be this weekend. It'll be in Geauga County because that's where she's from, and then there'll be one in Medina County, with presumably more to come if this goes as planned. Uh, so I think we'll have a story with more details on that soon, so people can can figure out if they want to make the drive and and go sign, but. I think this is the first time we've heard of an organized event to gather signatures. Is that right?
0: Yeah. And it'll be very interesting to see if people feel like you were talking earlier in the week about, oh, there's an event. I'm there. I want to go and get this on about. Because this is the first concrete action people can take since the Supreme Court got rid of Roe v. Wade. So I think you'll see that well, you, happen. Be interesting. We're, we're going to cover it if it happens. You know what
2: I wonder, though, is that we only have to get signatures from 44 of the 88 counties. So I wonder if there's a strategy there to focus on counties where they're more likely to get signatures. That's
1: interesting. I would say, though, that Geauga County right not exactly. be one of those. And she, she, in her text to me yesterday, she said, can you imagine if we can get a ton of signatures out in Geauga County, how successful this would be in bluer counties mm-hmm. or purple
3: counties. And then the so. other one she mentioned to you was Medina, right? Which I think you right, could argue is right. the other reddest in our coverage area.
0: That's true. Yeah. I, but, although this is a woman's rights issue that does in some ways transcend the red blue line there. So I, I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting. Certainly more Republicans than Democrats are anti-abortion as the polls go. But there's a lot of Republican women that did not like what happened with Roe v. Wade. So personally, I
1: don't want to wait to see if I cross paths with someone gathering signatures. I will seek out Mm -hmm. one of these events.
0: Yeah. That's what I suspect we'll see a good bit of. And the drive up is a great idea because that helps you avoid being accosted by protesters, um, which I expect anytime there's a public event, you'll see anti-abortion protesters show up to make noise. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What has become of the portrait of Larry Householder in the Ohio Statehouse following the racketeering conviction of the ousted Ohio House Speaker? Lisa?
2: His official portrait, which was hanging in the Ohio Statehouse, was removed Wednesday by the Capitol Square Review and Advisory Board. Uh, The removal was ordered by House Speaker Jason Stevens. He said it just didn't need to be there. Uh, that's according to a text from his spokesman, Aaron Mulvey. So it's now stored in a climate-controlled room uh, that's overseen by the advisory board. His portrait was unveiled, unveiled in 2017 with six other speaker portraits, uh, but he is still hanging in the in the House chamber. There are still some group photos where he's present and frames of different you know headshots, and he's still in those. Um, as we know, Householder served two terms as speaker in 2001. 2004 and from 2019 to 2020 before the House bill uh, sixth scandal blew up. Uh, But when he was elected, this is interesting, when he was elected in 2019 as Speaker, he had former Speaker Joanne Davidson's portrait moved from the House chamber to a less conspicuous location. But Bob Cupp moved that portrait back when he became Speaker in 2020.
0: I I wish they would have done this in a big public ceremony (laughs) to to show the disgrace of a corrupt figure. Look, corruption just is destroying uh, politics. It it wrecks the the voters' confidence in their government. What he did was terrible. And to quietly remove it, do it in a public way. Mm. He's been disgraced. Future. House speakers that consider being corrupt, they ought to understand the shame they'll feel when they're caught. And this was just kind of surreptitiously done. Do it publicly. Nobody should feel any allegiance to this guy. He betrayed every voter in Ohio.
2: Well, I wonder if they can find like some quiet little hallway near a restroom and relabel it the Hall of Shame and hang his portrait there. (laughs) (laughs) Have it above a urinal, maybe.
0: Okay, that, that one ups my disgrace idea. That's a good idea. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is Senator Sherrod Brown trying to make sure cities don't get socked by extra costs from derailments like the one in East
3: Palestine? Laura. He wants to make sure that the businesses are the ones paying for this cleanup and not just the railroads. Obviously, we're working or we're the people. Uh, He is working on legislation for that too. But he wants the businesses who are shipping the goods that go by train to pay for the cost of the emergency response. So this is his bill with two senators from Pennsylvania. They're both Democrats. They introduced legislation that would create this new fund that would be used to reimburse local first responders for all the expenses they accrue when the train derailments occur. And uh, so yeah, that they would be sharing the cost among all of them. This is separate from the bill that he's got with the Pennsylvania Senators and with J.D. Vance to require the well-trained two-person crews above every train and increase maximum fines for the Department of Transportation and expand the HAZMAT training grants. So we have two pieces of legislation we're looking at here.
0: Yeah, I guess this is a variation of the bills that have been passed in a lot of cities to charge you if an ambulance comes to your house to take you to the hospital. It usually goes to your insurance company. They're charging the train for causing huge damage and sucking up public safety time. And that's as it should be. But it is
3: interesting that it's the companies that are shipping the goods, right? Because they're using the railroad. So I I do, I think it's smart to pass this cost around. So it's not just Norfolk Southern and CSX, right? Um, And this would cover a lot of different things, replacing equipment, paying workers overtime, all the urgent costs that when the hazard materials are moving through their communities. And hopefully there's you know some built up reserves so that communities are better able to deal with this
0: all right you're listening to today in ohio it seems like this has been on the drawing board forever but suddenly it's urgent what is the news for the long rumored 100 million dollar expansion and renovation of the rock and roll hall of fame layla the news is that they
1: they hope to break ground by late summer, early fall, and, and have construction complete by the end of 2025, according to Steve Lidd. The drawings submitted to the City of Cleveland for Scrutiny Thursday by the Downtown Flats Design Review Committee and on March 31st by the City Planning Commission show that the Rock Hall's design team is Re- continuing to refine their concepts that were first made public a few you know years back in 2020 the rock hall will build a new wing to the west of its original building. it'll include expansive areas of glass and above it will be what Steve described as a low slung triangular roof that will intersect and partially enclose the base of the original building's pyramidal glass lobby. The museum's 50,000 square foot addition will also include offices, a new main entrance lobby, and a flat floor concert venue with seating for up to 900 or 450 at tables, that will give them a a better place to hold concerts other than the glass lobby. So the design review committee unanimously recommended approval of the design. One of the members of the committee, who's a landscape architect, commented that the Rock Hall's original architecture makes the building one of the most difficult to expand with an addition because of its unique design. But they were really impressed with how they pulled this off. So we'll hear more about this. One perk to the design is that the new main entrance will be much closer to Erie Side Avenue. So visitors won't have to, you know, just trek across that whole plaza to get inside.
0: Yeah, except there's no parking really out there. So they're still going to have to park somewhere and walk. Yeah, I there's I, never been.
1: It's all, that's always the worst part.
0: I I went over those schematic drawings and, and versions of what it looks like over and over. And I'm having a hard time seeing it. I, I wish there had been a almost a video walkthrough at ground level so you could feel what that waterfront is now gonna look like. Because I I couldn't get it from from the many pieces of art that Steve included with his story. Did you have, feel like you had a feel for it?
1: No, but I'm not good at visualizing stuff like that. So <laughs> but but I mean it sounds it's it, it's it sounds like they did find a way to make that pyramid uh work with this new this new um design uh i i can't imagine how how would you expand on that building that is just such a difficult challenge
0: yeah so yeah no I I trust what they're saying I just wish I had that kind of eye level walkthrough so I could feel what that that lakefront's going to look like anyway we'll be seeing it shortly if they get the shovels in the ground this year it'll go up quick you're listening to today in ohio when will the orange barrels show up for construction on interstate 77 and 480 in cuyoga county and how narrow will the highways be during the work? We so we're transitioning. We now are looking for snow and ice on the highways. Soon, the hazards will be the barrels. Yeah, And
2: they're going to be starting probably in April, although some projects are already underway. So the Ohio Department of Transportation is spending $2.5 billion this year on over 1,000 projects. But the lion's share of that money, $1.5 billion, is going to 202 planned projects for Northeast Ohio and 45 ongoing. Projects. So here in Cuyahoga County, the $36 million to fix the I-77 Miller Road interchange in Brecksville, that is underway. It should be completed in November of 2024. A third lane will be added to 480 West interchange to I-71 Ohio 237 and Grayton Road. Um, Here in Cleveland, they're going to be resurfacing East 140th Street between St. Clair and Lakeshore Boulevard. That will begin next month, and that will be finished in October 2024. In uh, Summit County, they're spending $481 million total. They're going to replace the Ohio 8 Bridge over the Cuyahoga River Valley, and they're going to have two new spans that are side by side. That's going to cost about $154 million. That's going to begin in July, and that will not be finished until June of 2028. Uh, There's $161 million being spent on the Akron Beltway. That's ongoing, and that should be finished in July of 2025. Also, they're going to widen I-77 between Ohio 21 and Everett Road. That will begin in September and finished in July 20. 2026. And in Lake County, $66 million on pavement replacement on US 20 between Ohio 2 and Ohio 528. And that should begin later this year. So orange barrels sprouting up soon.
0: Yeah, the 480 by Greaton Road is a, is a terrible traffic jam every afternoon. This should relieve that. But while they're doing the construction, I can't imagine that it's not going to make that far, far worse. Sounds like a area you'll really want to avoid. Uh, And it seems like Ohio 8 is always under construction. And it seems like that one, it it doesn't matter what's going on. There's somewhere along there you're going to encounter it.
3: Also, the most confusing intersection interchange ever in in Akron. Like, I've driven it since I was 16 years old, and I still end up in the wrong highway when I'm
0: done. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe this will fix that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We keep talking about how important shelter is for people of lesser means, but we don't seem to be providing it. What does just-released data show about the availability of affordable housing, Laura?
3: We're talking about the Coalition of Homelessness and Housing in Ohio. They just released data with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, and that showed that for every 100 households with extremely low income, there are only 40 affordable units of housing. That is 6% worse just in the last year. And what the organizations are blaming is the steep rent increases over the last few years, which we've also written about. And it's just a huge portion of income that's going toward housing. Um, the average asking rent in the Cleveland metro area was about $1,200, up 12% from 2021. And so there are two problems that are really um, hitting each other. We haven't built enough affordable housing in recent years, and too many jobs pay too little for employees to be able to afford these steep rent increases.
0: We're also seeing a lot of -of out-of-town owners, out-of-country owners who are scooping up Cleveland properties charging exorbitant rents and not maintaining them, which has crippled the housing supply. It's a huge problem that cities like Cleveland really don't know how to deal with. They're contemplating different kinds of laws, but they have to work within the Constitution. It's an ugly moment.
3: Right. And there's about 400,000 households that spend more than half their income on rent. And these, you know, we're talking about like a two bedroom apartment. We're not talking about a massive space here. And affordable housing is supposed to be beneath 30% of income. And the authors of this report say, hey, Ohio had this chance to invest millions of dollars into affordable housing with ARPA money, but they didn't.
0: They're too busy building golf clubhouses. <laughs> 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 Just poke. Never going to let that one poke. go. Poke. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Nermane named Nella Bird to two roles earlier this year, giving her two salaries, which raised questions about how someone can even do two full-time jobs. Layla, now he's reversed that decision. Why?
1: Yeah, Bird is now back to being just the Cuyahoga County Clerk of Courts and will no longer hold the role of Deputy Chief of Staff over safety and justice. That takes her salary from $219,000 when she was performing both jobs to $189,700. That was the amount she was earning as clerk in December after receiving the county's 6.44% pay increase She might end up getting less than that if Ronayne decides to claw back that pay raise for for top county officials, which is an idea that's been under consideration lately. But a county spokesman told Caitlin Durbin that the decision to limit Byrd to the clerk's job was made simply because changes were made to Ronayne's cabinet structure that moved the sheriff out from under the safety chief and instead has the sheriff reporting directly to the executive's office. And that really eliminated the need for a safety and justice chief. Of course, just a month ago, the county was defending Byrd's ability to perform both of these roles, which she's been doing only since December when it was said the role is responsible for developing and implementing the county's long-term strategy for public safety and justice services, and that includes the you know, the jail, sheriff's department, medical examiner's office. I guess they just don't need her to, to do that anymore. So the spokesman went on to say that Bird is still the right person for the clerk's job with her extensive experience administrating the business of the court and working with all of its players, the prosecutors, judges, law enforcement, and things like that. But, uh, you know, I don't know if there's something else that we're not hearing between the lines here.
0: Well, we did just publish a story last week about the expense of his new reorganization. Look, on the one hand, he comes into office. He he hasn't had the chance to drink from the fire hose and understand county government. So he makes some moves to get things covered. You could argue now that he understands a bit more about the structure, he's tuning it up to make it work better. It, it does seem odd that. You would reverse this this quickly, but maybe it's because of the learning curve or maybe yeah,
1: I, I I don't doubt that that's probably what, you know, that's probably what's happening. And we might see other moves like that as he fine tunes his uh, his administration, because he is he is brand new in this job. And yeah,
0: so yeah. and there's a lot to learn. So you are listening to Today in Ohio. Are juvenile court judges somehow lesser judges than those in the adult courts? What power did the Ohio Supreme Court say juvenile court judges do not have That adult court judges do. Lisa, for people that watch legal proceedings in courts, this is fascinating.
2: Well, it's weird because juvenile courts are a division of common police courts where granting immunity to witnesses is okay. But the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that most juvenile courts in Ohio lack the authority to promise immunity to witnesses if they testify to doing something illegal. So the Supreme Court said that, you know, juvenile courts get their authority from separate statutes in the law. There are eight counties in Ohio where the juvenile courts have been granted full legal authority by lawmakers. That would be Summit, Richland, Green, Butler, Lake, Lucas, Mahoning, and Montgomery. But, uh, the other ones are not. So there was a Southwest Ohio juvenile judge. It was barred from granting immunity to a child who was forced to testify against his mother in a domestic violence case in 2018. This was the case law that the Supreme Court looked at. So her misdemeanor conviction was overturned on appeal and prosecutors got a new trial and both the defense and and prosecutors wanted to grant immunity to the child in exchange for waiving his right to refuse to testify and incriminate himself. He apparently told two different stories of the incident to uh, police and to the, uh, the attorneys, the prosecuting attorneys, or the mother's attorney, rather. So there you have it. Some counties have it granted by law. The others just don't.
0: It's, it's bizarre that, that it works that very way. Very bizarre. It's bizarre that the judges don't have the powers of a judge. And then it's even more bizarre that in eight counties they do. Why would you grant it just eight counties?
2: And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to the counties that were granted this, you know, this full legal authority. So, yeah, I, you know, I guess they're saying that, you know, OK, they don't have this authority, but we're not going to grant it to them. So I don't know. It just seems very odd.
0: But if a judge, a prosecutor, and a defense attorney all agree yeah. that it's in the best interest of justice to grant immunity, why can't they? I mean, it's, it seems like this is a pointless roadblock to the to the carrying out of justice. And well, legislators should fix yeah. this, I guess. If the Supreme Court's saying it's what the law says, then they should change the law. Uh, You're listening to Today in Ohio. So, Leila, I did give you four stories, but I saved the one I think you think is the best <laughs> for last. How many horses are in the Cleveland Mountain Unit? How many police officers can actually ride them? And how much is Cleveland proposing to spend on a new stable for those horses? Take it away.
1: So this has been the talker in our newsroom the past few days. And City Hall reporter Cordy Astolfi is digging deeper into this because we just have so many questions. It's endless. But... In a nutshell, this week, the Mayor's Office of Capital Projects and Police Brass laid out for City Council what the police department's capital needs would be in the coming year. And that included, of course, the plans to renovate the former Artcraft Building into the new $90 million police headquarters. But it had it included these other plans, too. One of those is to spend like $5 million to turn South High School in the Slavic Village neighborhood into a public safety training center. We've reported on that before. Another is $6.5 million to relocate Cleveland's SWAT team to the former city kennel building. Well, that's interesting. But then there's a plan to spend $13 million to build a new stable facility for the police's mounted unit. The mounted unit that is having its big moment today as they trot down the center of town during the <laughs> St. Patty's Day Parade. And the current stables for the horses are located near the shoreway on East 38th Street. They need to be moved because they stand in the way of ODOT's plans to smooth out Dead Man's Curve. But I've been saving the kicker for the end here. This plan is $13 million for horse stables to house seven horses. Actually, the police chief during the council hearing said approximately seven horses, yeah, which had been laughing for hours. I, I, mean? was, I thought of mule? that like later in the evening and just cracked up all over again. <laughs> approximately seven horses. And <laughs> there are three police officers assigned to the mounted unit, only one of whom knows how to ride a horse. Mm. I just can't get over it. These these horses are used mainly during community events like the pa- St. Patrick's Day Parade and for some crowd control when needed. But generally, they are just a vestige of the past. They're like a bit of nostalgia that the city refuses to let go of despite so many other needs that could be paid for with that 13 million dollars. I'm just I'm just flabbergasted.
0: Well, I the, I've covered police a long time ago and police would tell you that the one value in law enforcement parlance for a mounted unit is the crowd control because they're so yes. tall. It gives them this imposing presence and also because they're way above the mm-hmm. crowd, they can see much farther. Now there are many other tools today that, that can do the same things. So it's not really something you can argue is an absolute need. But, but given how hard it is to hire police and the shortages of officers they have, this seems to be a luxury they can dispense with. And then... Spend that thirteen million dollars on stuff that, that is of a desperate need. It, it's hilarious. They have seven. They have one horse for every day of the week for this one rider, I guess. And and what do the other two people do? Do they brush them? Do they feed them? I, well,
1: <laughs> is I don't that know. is that a good
0: use for an a, a, a police officer?
1: I know. Do you really need a a an opata certified police officer to be hanging out at the stables all day? I mean, y- you could hire anybody to do that job. I, I I can't. I'm just astounded. And really, if you only have one cop who knows how to ride the horse, how much crowd crowd control are you getting out of that horse? I mean, if you dispatch it to. Any event that needs crowd control, you're, it's just not going to be that effective if that's what your main argument is for for maintaining this extremely expensive. Well, unit. She, you did and, a couple. and also. I wanna consider consider also that the city council recently refused to give the community police commission an extra two hundred twenty thousand to hire that staff attorney because they said the city has other priorities. <laughs> if council if council rubber stamps this thirteen million proposal for a Taj Mahal of stables for seven horses, they are yeah, really but, going to get but it. You, you cannot
2: negate the community outreach effect that horses have. I mean, you know, they bring them around to, I mean, they're approachable. You know, they stand out there, you're allowed to pat them. You can talk to the cops at how they can interact with the community. I'm not saying 13 million is a good price for a stable, but I am saying that horses other than crowd control are a community outreach thing. I think better community
1: outreach would be having better nicer, more approachable police officers.
0: (laughs) You did some checking yesterday and found that not every city has one or they could build a stable for considerably less money than Cleveland does.
1: Yes, we got we were looking we were just sort of just throwing the darts at at the map of, you know, what else can we can we write about regarding this? And one of the things we discovered was that in Cincinnati, they shut down their mounted unit like a decade ago. And there have been some community efforts to try to resurrect it. But the city has basically said, we really don't need this. There are other ways to do crowd control. Um, it's a very expensive unit to maintain. And, um, you know, they had moved on from it. So, so least- and they, they're they the cost of, uh, oh, yeah, where did I say? Oh, Baltimore, they had built a stable for far less. It was like two and a half million dollars to build their new stable a couple of years ago.
0: So. Less than 20% of this cost. To Lisa's point, I did put this out on my text message yesterday, and probably half the responses were very much in line with Lisa's point that that this is a way to build a relationship. People do like seeing these horses in the parks and at community events. The, what, what, so the value's there. It's just in a city that is so desperate for law enforcement resources, is this the best way to spend $13 million more to come? Mm-hmm. You're listening to today in Ohio. All right, Laura, it's the day when everyone almost claims to be a little bit Irish, but how Irish is greater Cleveland? Really?
3: I, I wondered, uh- I did not know this at all. We're about 13.4%. I wonder if that's higher or lower than most people think. Uh, We're higher than the rest of the state, which is at 12%. But we're not higher than Akron, which is 13.7%. And the most Irish city in the country is not Boston. It's Albany. And this is from the U.S. Census, from people who consider themselves Irish. So this isn't like a 23andMe study.
0: Yeah, actually, that would be interesting to see because that's definitive. Uh, Those DNA tests show exactly where your ancestors came from. All right, well, happy St. Patrick's Day! That does it for this episode of Today in Ohio. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Monday to talk about some more news.